Hey guys, I wanted to invite you to an event I'm going to be hosting at my home in Waco, Texas, June 16th through the 17th. This gathering is going to revolve around the Enneagram. You guys have heard me talk about the Enneagram, and I cannot say enough good things about this self-discovery tool uh, spiritually, um, in life, in business, in relationships. This thing has really unpacked so much beauty, uh, so much awareness for me, uh, and I want to share this gift with you. We are bringing in Chris Hewerts. You guys have heard his wife, Felina, on the podcast. Chris has been on the podcast. They're from the Gravity Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And Chris is one of the foremost leading experts in the United States around the conversation of the Enneagram. This is going to be a time of self-discovery, uh, a time of beauty. I also want it to be a time of rest uh, so we can learn how to be. We can learn who we are at the soul level so we can go out and do our good and necessary work. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be super chill, super laid back. We've got a few spots left, and we would love to see you there. Uh, you can go to ashtongustopson.com slash enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, and uh, find out more information. Would love to see you there, and uh, yeah, won't be the same without you. John Mark Comer lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife and three kids and serves as the pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church. He joins us in this episode of Let the Music Play as we talk through his latest book, God Has a Name, and how a hurried and busy life is the enemy of spirituality. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. You know, Sabbath is a discipline, and so just <laughs> right. like learning to play the piano or learning a second language. Nobody's good at it at first. There really is an art form to it. Yep. And you have to script it for your stage of life, for your city context, for your personality, for your living situation, all of that. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. This is where we chat about what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it means to make music with our lives, our relationships, and our careers. I am I'm thrilled, I'm honored, I'm super stoked to introduce you guys um, to really just a, uh, an incredible beacon, an author, a pastor, a great light that I've come across uh, in just the last few months. Um, he's author of numerous books. He's the pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, right by Powell's Books. And um, I'm just so excited to introduce you to this guy because he has a lot of life-giving uh, insight, I think, for all of us. And that being said, his name is John Mark Comer. John Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's fantastic to be with you. Well, um, thanks so much for coming on. Super grateful for your generosity. Uh, for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, um, how do you introduce yourself about what you're doing and the energy you're putting into the world? Yeah, I, I'm an apprentice to Jesus of Nazareth, like you, and right I, I prefer the word apprentice to yes. disciple. That's a bit more of a Christian word, and I really think that following Jesus is a whole life endeavor. So I, I kind of would define apprenticeship to Jesus around kind of organization of your whole life around three goals. The first is to be with Jesus. The second is to become like Jesus. And the third is to do what he did in your own way and in your own time. So that's basically kind of at 30,000 feet, what I'm trying to do with my life. And specifically, I'm really interested 
And what does it look like to follow Jesus, to practice the way of Jesus in the urban, secular, progressive, post-Christian world of yeah. which the city I call home, Portland, is a beacon of that. And more and more due to the digital age, um, that kind of a cultural environment is no longer limited to an Ivy League university that's hyper-progressive or uh, Portland or New York or San Francisco or L.A. More and more because of Wi-Fi, because of the smartphone, because of the podcast phenomenon, because of all of that, that way of thinking and being in the world is more and more ubiquitous. And so I'm just really interested in asking the question, how do we, as followers of Jesus, I'm a dad, I'm raising three children, how do we not only survive this kind of a new corrosive environment, but how do we actually thrive in it? And so that's where I'm doing work. Um, I lead a church right in the West End of downtown Portland. So right in just like the thick of where churches go to die. And um, <laughs> we're, we're slugging it out there with a bunch of other great churches in town and I teach the Bible. I'm really more of a teacher than a leader. And I write books um, every year or two. And I love that. And I'm basically just trying to figure out for my own life as a father and as a man, how do I follow Jesus? How do I be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did in this kind of a yeah. environment? Yeah. Yeah. And how do I help other people who are either new to faith or grew up in the church and have moved to a Portland or a San Francisco or just have access to Wi-Fi and are trying to find their footing in this new secular, progressive, post-Christian world. How do we move forward and, uh, and fight for Western civilization as a whole, but fight in particular for the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God in this new cultural moment? So that's, that's basically what I'm on about. That's it. Well, it's beautiful. Uh, there's, there's so many uh, things of your own story, and we'll get into this later, that I've kind of found a little bit synonymous with my own uh, path. Okay. But And I love how... Like y'all kind of have a saying, a mantra, if you will, of, you know, look, we're just trying to figure out what it's looked like, you know, to be in Portland as it is in heaven. Um, right. And, and I love how you use the word apprentice, you use the word follower. Um, and as I've listened to your teachings from afar, um, I just feel like it's a, it's a new angle, a breath of fresh air for some people that maybe have been frustrated with all things <laughs> spirituality. Um, right. You do a great job of pulling the veil back and go, hey, this, this, is, this is really what this thing's about. Uh, that's awesome. Well, the funny thing is it's not, an, it's not a new angle. It's actually a, a quite <laughs> right. old, it's an ancient angle that I think was... We got, we got it messed up. Yeah, and a part of that's, I mean, we're living still in the hangover of our kind of Christianized past yeah. in Western Europe and into the Americas. And I think in the Gospels, you know, there's this literary device that you see for sure in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even in John, basically in all four Gospel writers, you see this literary device of two groups of people. The mathetes is the word in Greek, or the disciples or the apprentices of Jesus. And then there's the crowds. Mm -hmm. And the crowds are this kind of dubious, unclear, we're not exactly sure who they are or where they're at kind of group. You know, mm -hmm. some of them are really interested in Jesus. Others are actually hostile to Jesus and there to undermine his teaching. Others are just hungry or want a good show. You're not exactly sure where the crowd are at. And so it's this literary device where as you're reading the Gospels, I think the writers want you to constantly ask the question, like, which group do I fall into? Am I an apprentice of Jesus or am I just kind of a face out in the crowd, interested or hostile or curious, but not actually following him? But I think in America, in the last few hundred years at least, maybe far beyond that, We've created this third category of Christian, which is a word that's barely used in the Bible, of Christianity, a word that's not used one time in any of the writings of the Bible, not once by Jesus of Nazareth. And it's this kind of, you know, I would define, but what most people mean by Christian is 
they have some kind of a semi-orthodox view of the basic tenets of right. Christianity. And they go to church once in a while. That might mean like on Easter, but, you know, once in a while. And they live a semi-moral life as they define morality or whatever. And, and that's fine. That's great. But that's that category just does not exist in the mind of Jesus mm-hmm. in the New Testament. You're either an apprentice or you're in the crowds. And the constant invitation is to move from one to the other. So I think we're trying to recapture that at our church and see if we can do away with that third category, if at all possible. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love that. Um, okay. So what I want to do today is really introduce people to uh, a couple of your works. The latest one uh, just released, what, two weeks ago, maybe? I mean, it hasn't yeah, been out yeah. long. Yes, two or th- I think three weeks today, actually. Got it. And so this latest one is called God Has a Name. And um, right. I love how you write. You, you kind of have these just riffs and bursts of writing. Um, and, and really what you're trying to do is point back to um, really when God said, hey, this is, this is who I am. And we're going to get into this. Um, but before we do, what, what led you to write this last book, God Has a Name? Um, you know, I think a number of things. One was my time in seminary with Dr. Gary Bashirs, who's the head of the theology department at Western Seminary. Um, I did this kind of in my living room, one full day a month class with him over a number of years. And just he would come back to this one passage in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, over and over and over again. The passage is all about God's name, Yahweh, and the definition of it is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. And he would just like come back to it so often that the whole class, myself included, started to mock him for it. But it really kind of reframed my vision of who God is as through the first and primary lens of relationship. And I came to believe that really all theology is conversation around the character of God rather than the kind of more Western European abstract ideas about God. You pick up most books about God or textbooks about God, and it's through the lens of systematic theology, which is really kind of Greek and Western philosophy. So chapter one, God is omnipresent. Chapter two, God is omniscient. Chapter three, God is omnibenevolent. And that's all great stuff, and I believe it, but that framework is just not the framework of the writers of the Library of Scripture. And I found it fascinating that when God describes himself at this kind of epochal moment on top of Mount Sinai with Moses in Exodus 34, that it's through a relational lens. For God, all those other facts about him, that he's all places at once, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's all good, those all matter. But what matters most is that he has a name, that he's a person, not an idea or an energy force out in the universe or a doctrine in a book. Well, none of that stuff is bad, but God is first and foremost a person. By person, I don't mean a human being yeah. or a man or a woman. I mean, he's a relational being who wants to relate to you. He has a name. That name is not God. It's Yahweh. It's the proper name for God in Hebrew. And it's about his character. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's bent toward you in that direction. So that, for me, really framed kind of my relationship to God. And then secondly, I think just I have this interesting vantage point because I grew up I'm the son of a pastor, great family, and I grew up in kind of conservative evangelicalism with all the good and all the bad of that background. And then now I'm living in this, you know, hyper-progressive, urban, secular, post-Christian environment that's the antithesis of everything I grew up in. And so I'm kind of living in and interacting in these two worlds of conservative evangelicalism on one hand and the progressive post-Christian world on the other. And when, of course, America as a whole is just so polarized right now between the right and the left in general. And so I think that both sides are missing key facets of who God is 
and out of that who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I'm kind of a little bit beating up on both sides a little bit and fighting for a, an option C that transcends the American kind of conservative liberal divide or that, that, that kind of is basically saying there's a bits and pieces of truth in each of these perspectives, but there's bits and pieces of untruth in each yeah. and lots actually in both. And what would Jesus actually have to say about this, that, or the other? So I kind of like to say this book, if you did, you grow up in the church. I sure friend? did. Yep. Yeah. So, so maybe you'll make sense of this um, if you're a reader, and um, which I know you are, but for the listeners. But I, I like to say this book is kind of like if A.W. Tozer's *The Knowledge of the Holy* hmm. and Rob Bell's *What We Talk About When We Talk About God* had a love child and she rebelled <laughs> against her parents. That's basically this it's book because it's a it's a book about God, and there are other books out there, you know, about God. But it's kind of beating up on, and, and I love Tozer, but it's kind of beating up on that systematic theology, God is a doctrine, almost yeah. more of a formula kind of view of God. And at the same time, it's beating up on the progressive recasting of God to make him a great guest for Oprah or for a city like Portland or whatever. And it's kind of saying, you know what, I think there's, a, I think there's another way forward um, through the life and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and the writings of the Old Testament and Exodus 34 in particular that I want to fight for. Totally. And you quote Tozer. Uh, I know one of the right out of the shoot, yeah. you say, what comes right. to our minds when we think about God is the most port- important thing about us. Um, right. And then you kind of chase that a little bit further with, you know, what we think about God will end up shaping our destiny. Um, and, and like, and then you even take it another step further and you go, here's the problem though. We usually end up with a God that looks a lot like us. You want to chat about that? Yeah, I mean, I just think that that's the cold, hard reality. Um, Scott McKnight, who I'm sure you've read his stuff, New Testament professor out of Chicago, he's a friend, great guy, was telling me that for years he did this undergraduate class on Jesus, and now he's teaching at a seminary, but for years he's at undergrad. And he would start off his class with two surveys, and the first was a list of questions about Jesus of Nazareth, and then the second was a list of questions about the student. And he said that most, 90% of the time, these answers were exactly the same. <laughs> and, and I just think either that means people are really Christ-like in his classes, right. or it means there is a human bent. You know, what's the old ad, adage that man, God created man in his own image and man being a gentleman returned the favor? Right. I think there is this human bent to make God in our own image that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the Garden of Eden and the primal ancient temptation to humanity to define for ourselves good from evil and define for ourselves who God is and who God isn't. And I think the downside is, especially in our kind of post-rational world that we are fast moving into both inside and outside the church, I think um, where it's a world based more on feeling and on perception and on political correctness than it is on truth or even reality. And authority has long since gone the way of the earth, whether it's the authority of the Bible or the church or the government or the constitution or whatever. We're moving kind of up to a post-rational, post-authoritative society. And I think in that kind of a cultural milieu, more and more, God starts to become a figment of our imagination. He starts to become... He just agrees with us on everything. He Mm. voted for the person we voted for, and he likes what we like, and he dislikes what we dislike, and he's chill about what we're chill about, passionate about what we're chill about, passionate about, and we never get mad at him or confused by him or upset by him or, you know, we never wrestle with it because he's really a figment of our imagination, or she is, or it is, or they are. So I think there is just this human bent, and I think it's easy to, as a follower of Jesus, to think, oh, yeah, that's for people out there in culture 
But I think it's true for us, too. I mean, Jesus spent a ton of his time telling religious conservatives that a lot of what they thought about God was wrong. And and Jesus was a religious conservative. He was speaking to his own tribe. Um, this great scholarly evidence that Jesus was a Pharisee, and he was speaking inside his own camp, so to speak. But I think you know Jesus would regularly say, "You've heard it said, but I say to you." Right. I Meaning you've heard this said, and it's in the Torah, but you lost the plot line. You missed it. You're not reading it right. So I say to you, here's actually the heart behind it. Or he would say, you know, the kingdom of God is like. And then he'd tell a parable that, especially if you read these parables in first century context, most of them were radically out of step with how people in his day and age thought about the kingdom of God. Yeah. It's not a mustard seed or, you know, a farmer. It's this war and it's total domination and it's all at once. And, you know, they're radically out of step with how people in his day and age thought. And so I just think even for us as followers of Jesus, even for us to take the Bible seriously, I think we always have to let Jesus and the writers of Scripture define for us our vision of who God is and who God isn't, and out of that, good and evil. And we have to sit in that. We have to mm-hmm. sit in the humility and the reality of Revelation, which more and more, in particular for millennials, is harder to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So you, um, th- this book is really just a word-by-word, line-by-line breakdown uh, of this dialogue between Moses and God in Exodus 33. Right. And so— yes. What like what do we learn about God in this? I mean, I don't want to call it a State of the Union address, but this this grand announcement of this is who I am, uh, this is right. what I'm about. What what do we learn about God in this passage? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much. There's a whole book book of content. I think some highlights out of the book are one: this idea of God as a person, meaning God as a relational being who wants to relate to you. Two: God as compassionate, as the top modifier on that list, um, compassionate, or it's also translated merciful. It's from a Hebrew word. The root word means female womb. And it's a word used all through the Old Testament and the Hebrew literature for the feeling. It's a feeling word for the feeling that a mother has toward her baby or a father has toward his child. So it's the feeling of a parent toward a child, which is essentially the most deep visceral, emotive love known to mankind, more than a man to a woman, more than a brother to a sister. That's like at the core of human love. And that's how God feels about you. So this baseline emotion of God toward you as compassion or mercy or affection or love, which is a a broad word. I think that's a key takeaway, especially when we think about the justice of God that that's in tension with. And I think third, one of the one of the really big ideas is this idea of our relationship to God being this open, interactive, dynamic, back and forth kind of relationship. So I think there's all sorts of implications of who God is around prayer, which is a broad kind of junk drawer term for all of our life and relationship to God. And so I make a big deal about, you know, Moses' interactions with God and a number of other characters in Scripture interactions with God, where, you know, for example, Moses, there's two stories in Exodus, and I write about both of them, where God is going to kind of basically end Israel and start over with Moses because of the level of rebellion is at an all-time high, and there's context to it. Don't take it out of context. And basically, you know, Moses starts to argue with God Mm -hmm. and plead with him and pray, and please don't do this. And then we read that God, and the Hebrew word is nahamd, And it can be translated changed his mind or relented is the most socially acceptable, but it's the exact same word translated repented everywhere else in the Old Testament. 
So God repented or relented or changed his mind, and all sorts of ink is spilled in explaining away that line, which comes up, by the way, over and over all through the Old Testament. But the fact is that God nahamed. He changed his mind. And there's, of course, academic and philosophical and theological things we have to work out. What exactly does that mean? But I do think that there's a beautiful reality there, that the story was going one way. Moses prayed, and the story changed direction. And I think very few of us view prayer in that high of a light, view our relationship to God in that high of a light, that kind of an open, interactive light. The massive implications for that, for prayer, for decision-making, for how we engage with God. And then I think the fourth big idea is just interacting around the problem of evil. And it's not a book about the problem of evil, but I come back to that idea over and over again, because I think you see it in this relational nature of God and this open, interactive, dynamic relationship with God and the goodness of God. That of course, raises the question, what about the problem of evil? And so I'm beat up a little bit kind of hard on what in philosophy is called determinism, what in theology, um, at least from a Calvinistic perspective, is called meticulous providence. And I just question that and I challenge it and fight for maybe another view that there are other wills at play on earth, that when Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he assumed that earth was, heaven was the place where God's will was done all the time. Mm. Earth is the place where God's will is done sometimes. But there are other wills at play, not just God's will, but my will and yours, human will, uh, Satan and the evil kingdom's will, even nature's will, if you would, not in a personified sense, but in kind of the, the laws and the rules and regulations of nature. And all these wills are in tension and in conflict and often at war with each other. And God is there right in the thick of it. Um, I think reticent to overpower human will and even spiritual will, but yet always working for good right in the midst of it. So I just kind of present an alternate way of reading the Bible, an alternate way of reading the problem of evil and even the, the emotional pain of our own life through this lens of the scriptures and this lens of a relational God that I think is at least worth thinking about, even if it's not your tradition or background. Totally. And, and, and let me just say, as a reader, um, I think this is a, uh, this is a perfect book for anyone remotely interested in the spiritual path. I mean, if you're, if you're like, no, the God thing, no, thank you. You know, whether it's from something that shouldn't have happened or a bad, you know, whatever you've may have experienced with the church before. I think this is a great re-entry for all of us, whether we're inside the church doors or outside of them to say, Hey, let's, let's go back. And just when we, when we're talking about God, let's begin at when he announced who he is. Um, yeah. And you do a br beautiful job of breaking that down. It reads super easily. You follow it uh, and you feel like uh, you've taken a whole semester of something at seminary when you're done with it. Um, so <laughs> oh, great, thanks, great job man. on that. That's so kind. Yeah. Most of the books I write and are all really geared for followers of Jesus. And the, the next books I'm planning on writing are even more so all about kind of apprenticeship to Jesus. But this was the first thing I've ever done. And maybe the last, I don't know, but where I really tried to keep people that aren't followers of Jesus or maybe are ex-followers of Jesus in mind yeah. as kind of an intro to God, intro to faith kind of thing. But yet I still wanted to make it stimulating for somebody that's been following Jesus for decades. Totally. Well, you did that. You totally succeeded in that. Um, so that book is available yeah. anywhere good books are bought and sold. Um, Fantastic. So make sure you guys go get that. The next one that I wanted to get into, uh, 
partially because I just feel like it's calling me out a bit, um, was Garden City. Um, Work, rest, and the art of being human. Now, I'm a sucker for the art of being human, and I'm a sucker for the metaphor of a garden. Um, Yes, love it. So I want to hear your story behind this, because I think um, as we enter our 20s and 30s, we're just told to go change the world and work, work, do, do. Um, and we wake up one day and that doesn't really work for us. Um, it's not sustainable. I take it. That's kind of your backstory to writing this book. Um, you want to share with us a little bit about how it came to be and your study of Sabbath and so forth? Yeah. I mean, the book is really, you know, the first part is all about work or a biblical theology of work. And I would tie that into what it means to be human. And the second part is really about Sabbath. And I think each has its own genesis. I've always been passionate about work. I'm bent in that direction. Um, I love what I do as hard and difficult as it is at times. And I want to see other people discover that. And I lead a church that's really young. You know, I think 70% of our church is single and in their 20s. And so they're all just right now in the thick of kind of post-college trying to figure out what am I doing with my life and what is good and beautiful and true and what is not. And is work just a way to make money, to live in the American dream or to make ends meet and then give a tithe to like go do kingdom stuff or is there more to it? Mm. And so I think that was kind of really the, the, the story to roll on about to want to write about work was more out of my pastoral experience and just conversation after conversation with young people who had no sense of a biblical theology of work other than like go make money and tithe to the and we're in the thick of trying to discover, especially for millennials who are, many of them, a parentless generation who did not have a father or mother or kind of Obi-Wan figure to mentor them into identity and calling. This is who you are, what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you're made to do. This is what matters in life. This is what doesn't. So many did not have that, even from upper middle class homes, that I wanted to kind of play that role through book form. And then I'm passionate about it and I love what I do and I want other people to experience that sensation. But the Sabbath thing was far more out of my own personal, like, uh, failure and emotional unhealth and, you know, one click short of a nervous breakdown and learning and asking really profound and deep questions about what do I want my life story to be? What do I want my legacy to be as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a human being? So that one, I think, is a lot more close to home and a lot more the last half decade of my life and kind of some real um, life-changing experiences that I've been through. And so um, you do a great job of breaking down work, like this whole idea of like we were made to rule, which immediately yes. immediately is like, what? Um, but you break that down so well, being that we are made in the image of this God, this God that um, entrusted us uh, to create and co-create and, and till the fields um, and then you get into this idea of Sabbath, and I know that it's it's so easy to quickly move into cliche uh, jargon, but I mean, again, part of me is calling myself out in this. Um, I, I, I just wanted to riff on some of these things that you refer to Sabbath, because it. I think, yeah. I think some of our listeners um, will really, really uh, help shape change, whether, they, um, whether they've experienced this or not. Um, I think it's a beautiful breakdown here. First off, I've heard you say before, and it may be someone else, but it's that hurry and busy is the enemy of spirituality. 
Yeah, yeah, that's not a quote of me. That's a Dallas Willard quote. Okay, Willard. So I, I love that. And then I can't remember what what page it is, but you you break down Sabbath for about two or three pages, and you say Sabbath is a day where I don't accomplish anything and I don't feel guilty. <laughs> um, I mean, dude, I I have felt that like I don't. It's this weird guilt that sets in when you're like, wait a minute, I'm not producing, I'm not doing something. Revenue isn't right. happening. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're a type A entrepreneur yes. driven kind of guy like yourself or myself. Yeah. So you're calling me out in that one, um, which I need. Next one, a day to enjoy what I have. Um, I love how you opened up the dialogue of like our pursuit of more, our pursuit of the next thing, our, our, our pursuit of the next uh, yeah. I think our generation rarely sits in the beauty of now. Um, yeah, it's always the next purchase, the next travel experience, the next stamp in your passport, the next accolade, the next movie, the next, the next, the next. Right, right. So this, you know, you hear Sabbath and you're like, oh yeah, well, it's a day where you don't work. And you're like, no, 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 time out. This is where you don't accomplish anything and you don't feel guilty. This is when you enjoy what you have. You're not you know, looking at yourself into the future and saying, when I have X, then I will fill in the blank. You're enjoying what's here and now. Um, right. And then this word, and I'm probably going to jack it up, but manuha, is that how we say this word? Yeah, um, absolutely. A, a day to stop and celebrate. And so I, I saw one of your sermons once where you're like, my family and I, we shut it all down. We pour a bottle of wine, we eat like mad, and we just raise a glass and toast to joy and redemption yep. and beauty. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so I'm like, we're, we're doing this in, in my house. We're about to put these four rules up on whatever day we've got Sabbath coming. Um, and you say, this is just a day when your goal is to savor every second. Um, yeah. What a different angle and what a freeing angle compared to the don't work today. Right. Um, you want to the legalistic kind of thing that we reacted. Yeah, 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 and 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 not that that's ever even been my own story, but it's that I haven't given myself permission to right. celebrate, to enjoy, to be like, hey, this day of unplugging is a massive day of recharging. Um, right. How has this translated into you and your family's life? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, honestly, it's changed everything for us. I was a typical kind of workaholic church planner pastor. I worked a six-day work week. Before we had children, I'd essentially wake up in the morning, read my Bible, pray for a bit, and then just work till, you know, 10 or so at night. It was my whole life. And I loved it for a year or two or three. And then each year I loved it less and less and less and less because I just grew more and more exhausted. That one day off of the week was a day off. It was not a Sabbath. And, um, it was a miserable day. I'd sleep in, I'd watch a movie, I'd go buy stuff, spend money from my paycheck and get in a fight with my wife and, you know, eat unhealthy food and then go back to work the next day. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I make a big deal about the difference between Sabbath, a Sabbath and a day off. Cause I think as, as Americans, yeah. most people don't even realize what a Sabbath is. It's yeah. been completely lost in our culture. And those that do kind of get it often have like a legalistic view of it. And so I think Americans, we know how to work as a general rule, and we know how to play, but we don't know how to rest. We really are pretty lousy at that. So what most people mean by a day off is a combination of like sleeping in and then doing all the work that you don't get paid for. So, you know, if you live in suburbia, you mow the lawn or whatever, um, you pay bills, you run errands, you catch up around the house, the apartment, and a day to basically shop 
and buy stuff and a day to play. If that's watch a movie or go play football or go to the beach or go skiing or whatever your thing is. Those are all great things. No problem with any of them. But none of those things, in my opinion, fall under the rubric of Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So as I read Sabbath, it's basically a day set aside for rest and worship. And worship is a big, broad, wide category that I would just, what I mean by that there is just life with God. In Exodus, there's this phrase about how the Sabbath is dedicated to Yahweh. So it's a whole day set aside to rest, um, but also to really re-engage at more intentional level than the other six days of the week with life with God. And so for us, it's rest, it's prayer, it's celebration, and it's delight, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. life together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's really changed everything. We had no kind of Sabbath at all, so we had to change our work week. I had had all sorts of implications for my work hours, my weekly rhythm, and we do ours um, because for us, uh, Sunday is kind of a marathon work day. We have three gatherings during the day and our last one's not till 7 p.m. So I'm not home till, you know, 11 o'clock at night or something. So for us, we Sabbath uh, Friday night through Saturday afternoon, 24 full hours. And yeah, we start, we have our little ritual. We turn off all of our electronic devices, computer off, phone off, iPad off. Everything literally goes into a box in a closet for 24 hours. Love it. We sit down around the table we light the candles of Sabbath. We pour a bottle of wine and grape juice for the kids. And we read a psalm. We invite the Holy Spirit. And then we just have this giant feast every single Friday night. And we do family time and highs and lows from the week and prayer. And then we eat dessert. And we kind of eat our, our way through. And we sleep for 10 hours. And we get up and we make brunch and eat more. And we go to the park if the weather's good. And we read fiction and we spend time together as a family and I'm really introverted. So I'll go off for hours every Saturday Mm -hmm. afternoon, just pray and read and think and journal. And sometimes we'll go on a walk and just whatever is life giving. We spend Mm -hmm. time, you know, really close friends sometimes, um, or just time together as a family. And I get a lot of time alone and it's just this incredible anchor point in our family life. It is by far, I think, really the most important spiritual discipline other than morning prayer hmm. for us, for me, for our family, and uh, an anchor point for our family life together, for our emotional health, for our spirituality. By the time I start Sabbath, you know, Friday night after a kind of a long work week and just family life and we're raising three children and in a city and all of that, man, I'm just dead tired. I collapse into bed on Friday night. I don't even have much soul left by the end of the week. I don't have a lot of spirit. I'm not, it's hard for me even to pray at the beginning of Sabbath. I'm so mm-hmm. tired. But then by the end of Saturday, after 24 hours, I just, I feel my soul come alive again. And I start to feel um, spiritually alive as well as emotionally alive. And my hunger, my thirst for God starts to go up and my mind starts to calm down and center from all the digital distraction. And my relationships start to kind of, heal and recalibrate with time together with my wife and my children. And so for us, it's, it's a, and we view Sabbath as a spiritual discipline and as one of the most important ones, um, especially in the modern world with its, you know, yeah. sense of go, 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 nonstop, always online, connectivity, uh, materialism, constant accumulation. You never have enough. You got to have more and more and more, especially now, I think more than ever before the need for Sabbath is front and center to spiritual life in general 
and apprenticeship to Jesus in particular. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I'm just thinking of the gift this is to your kids. Um, this uh, intentional recalibration. Um, hey, you were a human being before you were a human doing. Um, mm-hmm. And it just triggered with me, like you said, a, I think you said a day dedicated to Yahweh. Um, yeah. Which in Jewish translation, like is the sound of breath. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just sitting here like a day dedicated to inhale, exhale. Um, yeah. you know, in the pace of life today, we'd run and run and run, but this is a day to recenter, recalibrate. Um, and I appreciate your work and words in this, man. I'm going to take it to heart oh, thank and, you. Uh, and, and have fun. And I'm, I'm, I would encourage you, you know, Sabbath is a discipline. And so just right. like learning to play the piano or learning a second language, nobody's good at it at first. There yeah. really is an art form to it. Yeah. And you have to script it for your stage of life, for your city context, for your personality, for the, your living situation, all of that. Um, and so it takes time, but man, give it time because it's so worth it. It is honestly the most life-giving day of our week for me, for my wife, for all three of our children. You ask any of us, what's your favorite day of the week? Like without question, it's Sabbath. Hmm. Nine times out of 10, if not 99 times out of 100, Sabbath is the best day of our week. Love and, um, and it's so life-giving. And so, I mean, I just ache when I hear people mock it or write it off as a legalistic thing or just say I'm too busy or whatever. Cause I just think you are missing out on life, on spiritual life, on emotional life, on relational life, on physical life. I mean, you're just, it is so full of joy. Once you take the time, once you put the effort and energy into it in the language of Hebrews, once you labor to enter his rest, um, <laughs> man alive. It is just really life-giving. Beautiful. So um, you guys, that book is called Garden City. Please, please go get it. Um, Let's put this into practice. I know that this will be a huge light and and bring life into so many of our homes and families. Uh, And by the way, you work a lot better when you go back to work um, after you leave these types of days. Yeah, no question. I think even at a productivity level, you, you get back more than you put in, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. you work in the entrepreneurial circles more than myself, but I've read a number of articles recently just writing about how productivity after about, you know, I've read a couple different numbers, but high forties, low 50 hours per week. Once you pass that threshold, your productivity just plummets. Hmm. So the difference between somebody working 50 hours a week and somebody working 80 hours a week, really productivity wise, this is shocking, but it's not that different. Yep. Because yep. your productivity just plummets yep. and it's not sustainable. It's why most people, you know, survive two years or so in a job and then have to move on because they just can't do it anymore. So I think you get back so much more just, and that's not why we rest, yep. but if you set aside people, like, I don't have time. I have too much work to do. And I think, I, no, I have a lot of work. I'm leading a church, <laughs> writing books. I'm raising a family. Like I have, I'm not, I have a lot on my plate. If I can do it, you can do it. I'm not the president of the United States or something. I'm not some CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, but I have a lot on my plate. So if I can do it, the odds are that most people listening can do it too. And I think I don't have time not to do it because what I get, and not just emotional health, but I'm more creative, I'm more disciplined, I work harder, I work more efficient, my productivity is up, I'm more joyful, I have less, you know, lateral damage relationally in my wake because I'm so burned out that I'm grouchy all the time to people I work with. Yeah. I'm actually like healthy and rested and there's less mop up to do in my wake or whatever. So That's I just think, word. 
And you get so much, you get every minute that you put into Sabbath, you get it out back with interest. Love it. Ah, day to not accomplish anything and not feel guilty. Man, that's it. It's calling me out. Um, okay, before we go, what's currently keeping you curious? Any books, ideas, new things, music, you name it. Coffee, tea, what is it? Oh, man, music. <laughs> I'm listening, listening to the new Japanese house record EP right now. Okay. I'm loving it. Yeah, I played, I played in a band for years and years and years. Yes. Like, I kind of keep that in the DL, but I still love music like nobody's business. You're so, one of uh, us that let the music play. That right, let the music play. <laughs> so listening to Japanese house, that's currently at the top of my playlist. I'm reading The Benedict Option right now, which is a book that's kind of making waves that uh, I find fascinating. It's very similar to a series I did last summer on a creative minority, which is an idea from Jonathan Sachs and a number of other pastors, Mark Sayers in Australia, John Tyson in New York, some great friends and thinkers. And it's basically that, but more pessimistic and a bit more practical. So mm. I'm just riveted. I can't put the thing down. It's all about like just the decline of Western civilization, post-Christian culture that's increasingly hostile to what we believe. And what does the church look like going forward? How do we create almost urban domestic monasteries around the practices of Jesus, Sabbath being one of them, around education, spiritual formation, church, vocation. So that's what I'm reading right now and loving it. I'm reading a lot in that vein right now and just really asking the question, as I said at the beginning, what does discipleship to Jesus look like? What does church look like? What does community look like in the increasing urbanized and secularized world that is the West? Right on. Name of that book again, was it The Benedict Way? The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. Fascinating. Even if you disagree with a bunch of it, it's well worth a read. Very cool. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, man. Well, let's start with Sabbath. How about that? <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Yes. I think I would say take a whole day each week and just rest and worship. Turn off your phone. Be yourself. And I would say... Ask the question over and over again, who am I or who was I made to be first? And then ask the question, what am I called to do out of that place? Hmm. I think I spent so many years following stereotypes of success and trying to be somebody I'm not, trying to be an extrovert, trying to be a CEO leader, trying to be this, that, the other, rather than in humility, not in narcissism, in humility asking the question with an open mind, a non-judgmental spirit, all right, God, who did you make me to be? How am I wired? How did you, if you knit me together in my mother's womb in the language of Psalm 129, what does that look like? And then out of that, how do I construct a life, a career, in my language, a ministry, a book, whatever, out of that place of an authentic pursuit not only of Jesus and becoming like Jesus, but in doing so, becoming my real true self. So hmm. I think to begin, that means, you know, you take Myers-Briggs and Strength Finders and DISC and then you ratchet it up and you take the Enneagram and yeah. then you start to live in community and then you start to do listening prayer and hear God's voice over your life. But you're just over a period of years. I, I don't think I really started asking that question until I was 30 hmm. and I'd been successful at a number of the wrong things, which made me unsuccessful at a number of the right things. Hmm. And I think I didn't, I wish that a decade before I had started the Sabbath and I'd started to ask the question, who am I? And once again, not in narcissism, but in humility and in a quest to know God's identity over my life and out of that place to know God's calling on my life. So good. 
So good. Ladies and gentlemen, John Mark Comer, um, check out uh, the Bridgetown podcast, buy his books. There's plenty of great stuff you can find on YouTube. Um, on behalf of all of us, man, we are thankful for you and your good and necessary work. Um, stay curious, and I hope I get to have a cup of coffee with you in Portland one day. Heck yeah, man. We said the best coffee in the world. Come visit. Say hello. Thanks for having me on. Okay, bro. We'll talk soon. Yep. Bye. Bye. What an amazing conversation that was with John Mark. Make sure you go online, support what John Mark's doing, buy his books, listen to his podcast. I promise you, you will find his writing, his work, and his teaching uh, to be a great light in your life. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebirds sing, and be loved. This episode today is brought to you by Holsty. You guys have heard me speak in the past about Holsty. We've had one of the co-founders of Holsty on here, Mike Radpavar, and I cannot say enough good things about what these guys put into the world. For the month of May, the word is simplicity, uh, and every month they reground us, all of us that have kind of joined this Holsty movement, in a word. Uh, the month before was compassion. This month it's simplicity. Um, some One month before it was imagination. There are all these different and beautiful things to unpack. I can't say enough good things about it. So they sponsor us. They love what we're doing here. We love what they're doing. We're very aligned with all things Holsty, and I can't say enough good things about them. Go to Holsty.com, H-O-L-S-T-E-E.com, and join the monthly subscription. I think you'll find this to be a beautiful, enlightening, uh, just great tool for your overall life, relationships, businesses, and so forth. You can use the checkout code Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N, and you'll get a little discount there uh, if you join the monthly Holsty subscription.